You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We are, we're in the middle of a message series, a four-part series. We're asking the question, where is God? Now, if you look up at the night sky, like the uh, picture of this guy, it's pretty easy to see the presence of God in creation. In fact, Psalms 19.1 describes it this way, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's almost as if they're, they're saying words to us about how amazing God is. The bigger challenge is to look out on this evil world and see the presence of God there. Like you, I've been glued to the events going on in Ukraine. In fact, many times I have to just stop and say, I got I to gotta get to work. I got to stop checking up on what's going on. And I've been you know, horrified. I've been furious. I've been grieved over what's going on. And the question is, where is God in the middle of all of that evil? And this isn't the first war that's broken out in the history of humankind. It happens again and again. And so just three chapters later, in the book of Psalms, the same writer who wrote, The Heavens Declare the Glory of God, says this three chapters later in Psalms 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Imagine this is the prayer on the heart of many of the people in Ukraine right now. So in this series, we're looking at out on this world, and we're asking this question, where is God when life is dark, when life is bad? And our theme verse is Romans 8, 28. It says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What this is saying is God has not abandoned us or this broken world to our fate. He is not just the God of the heavens, he is the God of this world. And in this verse, God is not offering us a deal. He's not saying, if you will just love me this much, I will help you this much. This is not a deal. God is offering us a very different way to live in the middle of this broken world. He is offering us the opportunity to live for his purposes instead of our purposes, his will instead of our will. And if we decide to do that, God says, not only will you get a chance to be a part of what I'm doing in this world, I will work personally in your life to see that good comes out of your life. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, let me show you an image that illustrates, I think, what this looks like. This is a picture of downtown Pittsburgh. The park in the, the foreground, right, the, the point there is called Point Park. And the reason it's called Point Park is because this is the point where two rivers join together to form a new river, a third river. The river on the right is the Mahongahela. Now, if you think you're supposed to pronounce it differently, maybe. Um, this is how Google told me to pronounce it, and Google knows all. So that's what we're calling it. The river on the left is the Allegheny. They join together to form the Ohio River. The point at which the two rivers join is called the confluence. And I think that the word confluence describes what this verse, Romans 8, 28, is, is describing. The word confluence means flowing together with. And it's a picture of Romans 8, 28. 
Whenever we come to the point in our life when we surrender our purposes to God's purpose, what happens is our will, the, the flow, the current of our will, joins his will, his purposes. And when we do this, God doesn't just take over and use us for his purposes. God actually brings good to our life as we surrender to his purposes. Now, just to be clear, all analogies break down, and this one in some way breaks down because we are not two equally strong rivers like in this picture that grow to become even a stronger one. That's it's really not the complete picture. It's, it's more like we are a small trickle of water, and we get a chance to get in on something while it's the biggest thing that's going on, what God is doing. God invites us to join him. But this, this confluence of wills, this meshing together of what we want and what God wants, our purposes and his purposes, is not just an easy float down some kind of lazy river. Now, when we decide to surrender our will to God, we don't lose our will. We still have thoughts. We still have desires. We still have plans. We still have purposes. And it takes faith in God to go along with the flow of what he wants, what he is doing. And this happens at several points, but mostly when things are rough, that the confluence of wills is really tested. You know, rivers are notoriously windy. Here's a picture of a typical river. And that kind of reflects what happens as we surrender our will to God's will, is there are times when what God wills and what we will seems to line up very nicely. But then there are times where the river just suddenly takes a bend. God's will, and to follow him and obey him, we, we kind of need to head off in a direction that we really don't understand or we don't see why God is doing this or why God has brought this. And in those moments, it takes faith, trust, to stay with the flow of what God wants done. The other thing that's true about rivers is they're always changing. You know, they're smooth and placid one moment, and then they're like this. They're class five rapids the next moment. And that's the way it is when the confluence of our wills come together with God. There's moments where, where things are, are pretty placid, pretty calm. And then there are moments where, where we're just grabbing for breath. We can hardly see how we're going to survive this. And it takes faith to trust God in the moment of that rough time. So it's in these moments when the confluence of our will and God's will is tested. Our faith is tested. Now, not many have had their faith tested more than Abraham. We are looking at some of the stories in the Old Testament portion of the Bible that are about individuals who went through some really bad things. And as we read their stories, we can see how God brought good out of some really hard things. Abraham is called the father of faith. He's the one we're looking at this morning. And he was called the father of faith, not because, of course, he didn't invent faith, but because he is the one that God points to as an example of the kind of faith that saves us and that God uses for our good. And God doesn't point to Abraham and say, you just need to be like that. He points to Abraham and 
It says, here's an example of how faith grows. Because Abraham's faith didn't start out strong. Like every faith, it starts out like a little seed. Abraham didn't wake up one day and have this deep trust in God. No, it was developed over time. And the the primary instrument that God used to develop Abraham's faith is the same instrument that he uses to develop our faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is a, a record of many stories of people who have trusted God. Abraham is the one largely, most largely featured in this chapter. And this is what it says about him in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him. That's the tool that God used for Abraham and uses for us, testing. It's in the the tests of life. When life is bad, that's when faith has the opportunity to grow. Without it, faith does not really grow. Really, it's a principle of life. If you don't use it, you will what? Lose it. So you stop using your muscles, and they will atrophy. You stop learning, and your mind will grow dull. So when are faith muscles exercised? Whenever life is scary. Whenever you're tested. Now, we we all wish we could stay in shape without exercise. And we all would love to learn without having to put in the work of study. And boy, I would love it if we could just learn how to trust God without trials. But it just doesn't work that way. And it would be great if God would give us the test questions of faith in advance, kind of like a test that you're cramming for, studying for. It would be great to have some information about what's going to be on the test. But of course, then it wouldn't be a real test, would it, if you knew all the questions in advance? So instead, what God does is he gives us tests that he's given to other people before. We get the test questions of those who have gone before us. And Abraham is one of those tests. He points to Abraham and says, you're going to want to be very familiar with the questions that were on Abraham's test. Because while your questions, your circumstance, my circumstance is going to be different, it's going to be customized to what we most need, for all of us, our test questions are going to fall in the similar categories, the three categories of fear, just like they did for Abraham. So we can learn a lot about how to be prepared for the tests that either we're in the middle of or are certainly coming for us. So we're going to look at the three test questions that Abraham faced. The first question is the foundation question, and we all face this question. We're all tested in this area. Whenever life gets scary, we are shaken to our foundation. This is part of what's happening, even though the war in Ukraine is a long ways away. It's it's a foundational shaking event in this world. This world has been on the illusion that people are basically good. And that illusion, history does not testify to that illusion, but that's a dominant illusion. And that illusion has been destroyed by this war. So we are shaken to our foundation. Several hundred years after the great flood, not much had changed in this world. The majority of people were still rebellious against God. So God decided to take a different approach and form a new nation 
that would represent him in this world. And he selected Abraham to be the father of this nation. And he told Abraham to leave his home and go to a place that he would show him, and that place would be the future of this new nation. So we read this accounting of it in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he didn't just get up and go. This, this was a move of faith. When called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance. He obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. God just gave him a compass setting, and he went. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Why did he do this? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was building on a different foundation. This, when life gets scary, the foundation gets tested. Now, what Abraham did was much harder than it is now to uproot your family and move to a different state or even a different country. You have to understand, Abraham is 75 when God tells him to pack up and get, thing, get, get moving, get going. And this would have been most likely when Abraham was probably at his wealthiest and most secure. In the ancient world, you have to understand, there were no bank branches to transfer your money to a different location. There were no police forces or protection um, to count on. A move like this in the ancient world involved packing up your entire net worth, which was mostly livestock, and together with the people you love, head out into the desert where there's limited water and food and there's plenty of raiding bands. This was a good way to lose your entire life's work. People didn't travel back then like they do now. It wasn't safe. And the trip wasn't the only risk. He was going to a place, it says, that he didn't know. He wasn't given the final destination. He was just given a compass setting. So there had to be questions. Is there going to be enough food there? Is there going to be enough water there? Will there be a, a powerful king or, or warlord who is going to see my arrival as an opportunity to take all my stuff? This is why only armies and bands of men would venture out from the protection of their homes and their cities in the ancient world. Rarely would women and children and herds travel. I mean, almost never. So why did Abraham do what God had said, even at a great risk to himself and to those he loved? It says in that last statement, because he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What, what that means is he realized that everything that he'd worked for in this life up to this point, he's 75, was not built on a lasting foundation. What he realized is that everything could be lost in an instant. This war in Ukraine is showing us that. We tend to have our heads down, doing our work, doing our business, and then something like this happens, we realize we're looking at people just like us who had lives and jobs and houses, and a one day is gone. This is the world we live in. And what Abraham realized is that the only thing that lasts is what God builds. 
So we decide to obey God's word no matter what. It's the same today for us. Why do what God says? Because it's the only way to build a life that will last into eternity. The challenge is this, and has always been this. Until we get to that city whose architect and builder is God, we need to live in this one. And in this city, we have very real and pressing needs. And so in this moment, it's really hard for us to see God. What we see are the needs that we have, or what we fear are the things that are going to put what we have at risk. So how can we see God when the foundation is shaking? The primary way we see God, and the song we just sang references it, we see God over time. We don't necessarily see him today. We see him over time. But we want to see God now. And if he doesn't show up in ways that we can tell, we're not so sure that he can be trusted. The problem is now is temporary. This current crisis will pass. And guess what's going to replace it? The next crisis. That's the story of world history. But God's focus is not on crisis management, but on foundation building. That's his focus. We think God should be in crisis management. It's not that God doesn't care about crises, but he knows that in this broken world, crises keep coming. And in the middle of the crisis, whether it's a world crisis or whether it's a personal crisis, God is saying, would you now look at the foundation? Because that's what matters. The foundation you're building. The foundation is so important because we are eternal beings made in God's image. And what that means is what we build in this life lays the foundation of what we will experience forever, for all of eternity. We're building a foundation right now that we will live on for all of eternity. These few decades, the only decades we've known, are the foundation of our eternity. We will take the foundation of our life with us. The visible stuff stays. The visible stuff is like the tents that Abraham was living in. It's temporary. Now make no mistake, we need the tent. We need our tent to live in. But, but please hear what God says to us. This life is not about the tent or tents. We tend to focus on building the nicest and most comfortable and secure tent that we can. And that's why we want God to show up and fix a tear that's now come in our tent or stop the wind from blowing so hard on our tent. But God says, the foundation is the deal. God is wanting us to lay the foundation of a life that will start here and go on into eternity. That's a different time frame. We're tent builders, God's foundation building. That's why we don't see God, because our primary heart and focus is on the tents. We think that this life and the next life are unconnected. 
We think we can make our decisions here, do what we want here, and then we die, and then we begin all over. We get a brand new start in the new life. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the foundation that we are building in this life is connected to the next life. What we are really building here is not something visible, but the foundation of our eternal life. And when, when we face trials, God is trying to get our gaze towards the foundation. For me personally, I've had two cancer surgeries so far. Prostate, melanoma. I did see the kindness of God in the early diagnosis and in the successful surgeries. But how about my nephew? Many of you know of his story. He died of cancer at age 16. Where was God? You see, here's the challenge. If you demand God to show up in the events that we can see, if you can only see God when good things happen, you're going to miss much of what God is doing in your life. For me personally, as I look back on my two cancer scares, what I saw most was how fragile my tent, my body, this life really is. It was God's way of reminding me that I'm in the last third, maybe, of the foundation building time of my eternity. Not just my life, my eternity. And I came out of those two situations determined, I don't do it perfectly, none of us do, but determined to build well on the foundation. I don't want to leave an amazing tent, just an amazing tent when I die. I mean, I'm grateful for our house. We just got some new furniture for the tent that took forever to arrive, <laughs> but it did. So I'm, I'm not saying we're, we're living in a tent in our backyard. No, we have a nice home, and I'm grateful for it. This morning it was cold. I'm really grateful to have the heater. But we live our daily lives focused on these things, and, and we tend to forget the bigger thing that we need to build the foundation whose architect and builder is God. And the only way we, we do that is as we face trials and learn to trust God. That's why God brings the scary, is to get us to look at the foundation. Test question number two, the confusion question. Whenever life gets scary, we get confused. The question that Ethan said was unhelpful last week is right. Why? We get confused. Here's what we read in Hebrews 11, 11 through 12 about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was made barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead. That's one of my favorite, you know. I'm approaching the age where I'm almost as good as dead. And when it comes to having kids, I am as good as dead. <laughs> Came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. 
Abraham, it says, considered him faithful who made the promise. Now, Abraham didn't always consider him faithful. He came to that point. It took time. You know, if you read the story of Abraham in Genesis, it takes about 30 minutes to read the story. But what you often miss if you just read the story is the story covers decades. 30 minutes to read, about three decades. And unless you look at the timeline, you don't realize how much of the time Abraham was simply waiting. The story starts in Genesis chapter 12 when God told Abraham to pack up and head south. At that time, God told Abraham he was going to be the father of a great nation. The problem, he didn't have a son. In the ancient world, everything, inheritance was passed down through the eldest son. He didn't have a son. He was 75. His wife was 65. As it says, as good as dead when it comes to having kids. But God promised a son. So Abraham heads on, I'm going to be a father. Abraham hears nothing about God's promise for eight years. Just, just imagine that, for eight years. I'm only getting older. When is this going to happen? Time's not on their side. Finally, God appears to Abraham again after eight years in Genesis 15, verse 2. And here's Abraham's response to God's appearance. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. So listen to what's been on Abraham's mind for eight years. I remain childless. Did you forget something? When is God going to come through on this? So in response, God doubles down on the promise. He shows Abraham the stars and says that his descendants will eventually be greater in number than the stars of the sky. It's not recorded what Abraham says. I would guess it's something like, great, but should we start with one? <laughs> Let's start there and see what happens. So God doubles down the promise. Three years later, still no son. Just, just put yourself amazing. Abraham is now 86, mostly dead. And Sarah is 76. Well, Sarah finally snapped. She's had enough waiting. This is ridiculous. Genesis 16, 2 shows she said to Abraham, and this is hard for us to understand because we don't live in the ancient world where passing on inheritance was about the only way to bring stability. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham, like most guys, agreed. So Sarah said. God then tells Abraham that by not waiting, so Abraham does this. There's a son born. His name is Ishmael. But Abraham says, he, or God says to Abraham, by not waiting, to make, for me to make good on that promise, you have sown seeds of conflict. He says, this son of yours, Ishmael, will live in hostility with his brothers, with the son that I'm going to give you. Ishmael turns out to become the father of the Arab race. The hostility that God described continues to this day. Thirteen years later, are you tracking the timeline? Thirteen years later, God appears again to Abraham and gives him a new name. From Abram, 
don't know if you've noticed, but some of the, it's been saying Abram, A-B-R-A-M, which means exalted father to Abraham, which means father of many. More like father of none, yet. Abraham does not respond to this new name in faith. In fact, he laughs at this new name. Here's the verse where you can read it. He laughs at his new name. For Abraham, God's words said over and over again, I'm going to give you a son. You're going to have inheritance. You're going to have a nation as many as the stars. At this point, all Abraham can do is just laugh. It's getting ridiculous. Later that same year, God appears to Sarah and tells her that she will have a child within a year. Guess what she does? She laughs. One year later, Isaac, their son, is born. You know what the the name Isaac means? Laughter. God said, I want you to name your boy Laughter. It's God's ways of saying, my word's going to get the last laugh. It will come to be. God's word will be done. It just won't be done on our timetable. The reason that so many give up on faith in God is because they draw the finish line at some place in time where God has not drawn the finish line. So when things don't work out in time, they have no reason to go on. So where can we see God when we're confused? I think one of the best places we can see God in his word. Reading the Bible on a regular daily basis expands your time frame. It takes you out of the (gasps) crisis of the moment and elevates your perspective. In the Bible, we read the stories of people like Abraham and Joseph and Gideon, the three that we've looked at so far, and we see that God's plan is long-term and that it's bigger than us. And that's why we often have to wait to see evidence of his words coming through. And in some cases, we won't see his words coming true until the next life. In Hebrews, this list of the people of faith, it says at one point, some of these people died not having received the promise yet. They're still waiting. They get to see it in heaven, but not in this life. We all start out with short-term faith. That's the seed of faith. We will trust God for a week, maybe a month, but we have our faith limit. So to grow our faith, God stretches our faith, our faith time limit, by having us wait and wait and wait. Last question, number three, the lost question. What we fear when we are scared is loss. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 records the next event in Abraham's life, the next test on his question, his life questions. It says, by faith, Abraham, when when God tested him, offered Isaac, this is the son, as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. This is the nation. Why? Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So here's what happened. 25 years after the promise, Isaac is born. Finally, Abraham has a son. Just imagine the joy. Now imagine the horror. 
when a few short years later, God tells Abraham to offer his son to him as a sacrifice. This made no sense at all. This was the practice of the pagan people of the day. This was the practice that God abhorred, that commanded his people to have no part in. And now God was telling Abraham to do this. And not only that, this was the promised son. None of this made sense. But Abraham resolutely, solemnly, puts his son on an altar and is about to plunge the knife into his chest when the angel of God stops him. Why would God do this? To test Abraham and reveal how much Abraham's faith had grown over the years. You see, if the foundation is the key, then the tests are valuable more than the challenges that they represent. The point is this. We see God in the past. This is why Abraham made this decision. We now get to see a glimpse of a more fully developed faith than we've seen so far in Abraham's life. Now, we all have differing amounts of faith. And the amount of your faith and the amount of my faith is not a function of our commitment. It's a function of our history. How we have trusted God up to this point or not. That's how much faith you and I have. We've developed it over time. We don't just say, okay, now I got an extra 10 pounds of faith. No, it's just like muscle mass. It's built over time. Abraham didn't just dig deep and find the emotional resolve to pass this massive faith test. What it says in Hebrews is he reasoned his way to trust in God. That's an interesting way to, we don't think of reason and faith in the same category, but it is. The word reasoned here in the Greek language, which is what this was written in, literally means he took inventory. He looked back over and he took an inventory of the tests up to this point. And by this time, he had trusted God many times and had become convinced that he is reliable. You see, you don't get this level of faith by studying about God, by debating about God. You get it by taking steps to actually trust God. You see, when things are tough, we all turn to something. And what we turn to is our faith. Some turn to a substance when things are tough. That's their God. Some people turn to anger when things get tough. That's their God. Some people turn to money. That's their God. This is why change is so hard. Because you're not just changing behavior. What you're changing is faith. A person who has developed faith, for example, in money through a long history of turning to it is not suddenly, out of the blue, going to start trusting God. They're going to have to start trusting God with some of their money now and grow. So the decision to follow Jesus, what that means is you are now getting a start on writing a new faith history. And it's as you take steps of faith 
that, that faith will grow. So take a step. Where do you need to trust God today? What step can you take? The steps that you and I take today will prepare us for the tests of the future. Here's a challenge that we face when it comes to life tests. You can't cram for them. I have no idea how I'm going to be tested next year, five years from now. I don't know. God does, and he's bringing me the test now to prepare me for that test. And if I don't pass these tests, it's going to be a disaster when I get to those tests. We can't cram. You prepare for the tests of the future one day at a time. The truth is we're all laying a foundation. We are all building something. The big question is this. Is the architect and builder of that foundation God, or is it just us? Hebrews 11, verse 10 again. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Let's pray. Father, we work so hard to make heaven out of this world. But this world, while it has many great gifts, and has the residual effects of the beauty of what you have done in creation, it's marred by sin, it's broken. And it is not heaven. And we get the chance to pay out our days and our lives to build a foundation that you, the great architect, have designed and that you help us build. We're all at different places. We have different amounts of faith. But we're all on the same journey into eternity. And God, I pray that you would show us with the days and the years that we have left what we can do to build on that foundation that you have designed rather than Try to get a better tent. Help us, we need, because all we can see are the tents. Help us to see what really matters. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.